Well, this past Christmas, someone gave me a book, May Their Tribe Increase, titled Take the Steps. And the book and the title were inspired when the author noticed a jam-packed escalator standing next to a completely vacant staircase. And it occurred to him that the vast majority of people choose the path of least resistance and oftentimes end up being the poorer in health for it. Whereas those who actually take the harder course end up developing because it's effort and sacrifice that develop us as persons. His opening chapter is the paradox of sacrifice, that oftentimes those who seek to flee frightening situations find themselves enduring them longer than those who face them head on. And he gives in an illustration, uh, he grew up in the plains of Colorado, I hope it's true, uh, that when a thunderstorm comes off the Rockies, the cows try to flee the storm. But a storm is faster than a cow. And because they're moving away from it, they're moving actually with it, and they stay in the storm longer. But the buffalo charge the storm. And seeing the storm, they run head into it, and as a result, they pass through it more quickly. Uh, I hope that's true, because that's a great illustration of the way that sometimes when we flee frightening situations, we make them harder, whereas opposed when we just face them head on, they can do us much good. Both of these principles are true of the Christian life as well. That many would pick the path of least resistance and come sit and soak and sour occasionally. But when those who commit themselves to Christ and develop the full life of discipleship that he intends for us, through that effort, through that commitment, through that cost, there's growth, there's development, there's maturation. And knowing that we need to be reminded of our need of Christ, he will often lead us into storms that challenge us, that frighten us, so that we turn to him for deliverance and find him ever faithful. Last week, we looked at the compassionate authority of Christ to heal afflictions. And Jesus would be willing to touch a leper that no one else wanted to even be in their midst. That Jesus was willing to heal a Gentile servant. That Jesus was willing to heal a bedridden mom with fever. That Jesus was willing to heal the multitudes that came to him or to cast out the demons that they were afflicted with. And the compassion of Christ expressed itself in authority to heal afflictions. Today's passage is going to reveal Jesus' divine authority to direct and to protect his disciples. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8, where we're going to be seeing Christ's divine authority to direct his disciples and define what discipleship looks like as well as to protect and preserve his disciples so that we will follow Christ no matter what the cost, for he is God. That we will prioritize Christ over everything and everyone else, for he is God. And that we will turn to Christ in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves, for he is God. So that's our text this morning. Look with me beginning in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. The crowds are like a Greek chorus in the drama of Christ's life. They're always there loitering and lingering around. So we saw the crowds following Christ, and he left them to go up on the Sermon on the Mount. And he began teaching the disciples, and then the crowds came and joined him. And then the crowds were gathered at Capernaum when they wanted to hear uh, from the healer. And then now the morning after, the crowds are there once again, and Christ, once again, is going to depart from them. So many times Jesus will speak to the multitudes, 
but then he almost always withdraws to spend time with the few disciples. Because if you remember from the beginning of our study of Matthew, Christ's plan to reach the globe with the gospel was not to attract larger and larger crowds, but rather to invest and develop a few disciples through whom he would continue his work when he was gone. So we're going to say, yes, Jesus will speak to the crowds, but then he spends time with the 70 that he'll send out in Luke 10. He'll spend more time with the 12. He'll spend even more time with Peter, James, and John, that inner three that saw the transfiguration, that saw him raise Jairus' daughter. So Jesus' plan was to invest himself more heavily in some than others, but it was always to train up disciples who would go and make disciples of all the nations, not to simply see how many hits, followers, and subscribers he could get online. And that's a good lesson for us as well. That as we just faithfully and intentionally love whomever God sends us, as we can, while we can, that God uses that investment to develop people, to shape souls, to make disciples, to mature saints who can go and do the same for others. And that's how the work is going to be done. One saint at a time, one soul at a time, not through the masses. Uh, I had a professor at Dallas Seminary who used to say, you can impress from a distance, but you impact one-on-one you impact up close. That you can watch someone, listen to someone, and they can impress you, and they can impact you. But true impressions, indelible impressions, are made through close contact over time. And as he's preparing to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a scribe comes up to him. Now, a scribe was a scholar of the Torah, of the book of Moses. And back in that day, a student would pick a rabbi under whom he wanted to study and would approach that rabbi to be his instructor. And so a comparison today might be like a graduate student picking a particular professor who would be able to guide them in their dissertation studies. Or a martial, martial artist selecting a particular sensei that he wanted to learn a particular style or technique from. So it wasn't the student that tried to draft the teachers. The students came to the teachers and said, I want to be your student. And so this scribe comes to Jesus with a very bold statement I will follow you wherever you go. It sounds a little bit like Peter. Remember when he says, though all fall away from you, I'm never going to fall away. But of course, Jesus sees through that self-blind audacity like he sees through ours. And he responds to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the first time we've seen this phrase, the Son of Man, in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's going to become Jesus' most recurring self-designation. This is the title that he's going to use most often to refer to himself. It's used 30 additional times in the Gospel of Matthew, 50 additional times in the other Gospels, always either from the lips of Jesus or twice from people quoting Jesus and him saying it. Because if Jesus said, I am the Messiah, that was a politically loaded term. And now people have expectations of him delivering them from the Romans. But the Son of Man was chosen because it's an ambiguous term. It's used in three different ways that tell a remarkable redemptive story. Eleven of the occurrences in Matthew refer to the divine Son of Man that appears in Daniel chapter 7. That as Daniel is now seeing this vision of God's reigning on the Ancient of Days, and this one like the Son of Man comes before him, and God is going to use him to overthrow his enemies and to establish a reign over all of the earth that will last forever and forever. And this phrase is used often by Christ of himself. 
Here's the Daniel passage. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. God Almighty was presented before him. And to him the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So Christ is going to repeatedly refer to himself as this divine Son of Man that God had promised who would overthrow the enemies of God and reign over the earth forever and forever, which only God can do. Then there's another set of passages that just refer to the Son of Man ministering as the incarnate God in various settings on earth. For example, Matthew eleven nineteen 19 says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. In Matthew 13, 37, he says, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So sometimes the Son of Man is this figure that is among men, and he is among the common men, not just the elites, not just the wealthy, not just the religious leaders. He's there walking among the people that others dismissed as sinners, tax gatherers, uh, drinkers, drunkards, and he is there spreading the good news of the gospel. But then there's a third set of sayings that talk about the Son of Man suffering and dying and rising again. For example, in Matthew 17, Jesus will say, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and will be raised, and he will be raised on the third day. In Matthew 20, 18 and 19, Jesus says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And if we take these three collections of Son of Man sayings, they have this wonderful redemptive relationship that Jesus is the divine Son of Man who is going to come and reign over all of the world forever and forever and forever. But God so loved the world that he sent that Son of Man to become a man, to become the incarnate God-man who walked among the common people who associated with people that religious people didn't associate with. And he shared the good news with them because in another saying in Luke, it says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And for those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, we can recount in our testimony the time that he sought us individually. And he came, found us wherever we had wandered away. And he came and he healed us and he carried us home. And his love for us was so great that he didn't really come to come and to share a gospel and to teach. He also came to suffer and to be scourged and to be mocked and to die and then to rise on the third day. So in these three set of Son of Man sayings, we get redemptive history of God who is reigning with the Father, who now comes incarnate to share this good news, who dies on the cross and rises from the grave and is returning someday. And this is who Jesus is. In other words, the scribe had more reason than he realized to follow Jesus wherever he went. But Jesus is going to challenge him that are you willing to count the cost? Because Jesus did not preach a prosperity gospel. Jesus did not say, come to me and I will make you healthy and wealthy. He did not say, follow me and I will give you comfort and ease. 
He did not come and say, I will give you popularity and earthly success. Instead, he said, anyone who would come after me must take up his what? Cross. Anyone who would come after me, follow after me, must deny himself and take up his cross and come follow me. In other words, the warning is that those who follow after Christ are likely going to suffer the things that Christ suffered. That we should expect to be rejected by our peers or our family or our friends. It may cost us career ambitions. It may cost us professional advancement. It may cost us certain opportunities to hold particular offices or positions. It may cost us limb. It may cost us life because following after Christ is costly. He knew that he was going to have an itinerant ministry and that many times he would go and not be received by the people that he had gone to preach to and the foxes could have a place to lay their head at night, but not Jesus. And the birds had a nest to return to at the end of their day, but not necessarily Jesus. And so he tells the scribe, as he tells any who would come after him, count the cost because coming after Christ is costly. And you need to beware what you're entering into before you make this commitment. Uh, I have good news to share. Fred Cummings is going to be back on June 25th. His, and I share that for a couple reasons. Uh, his 100 day of isolation from his stem cell transplant is going to be finished. And Fred is going to be in the pulpit on June 25th because he has much to share about what God has been teaching him in this experience in this battle with cancer. I'm going to tell you in advance, y'all's tendency is going to be to rush Fred. He is allowed to be with us, but not yet to be embraced by 60, 70 people in one morning. So when he comes, smile, wave, give air hugs or whatever, but please don't rush the stage. Don't go into the mosh pit because Fred needs to still protect himself. But for those of you who don't know, Fred Cummings is an OBGYN who over the course of his career has had many young people say, Dr. Fred, I think I want to be an OB-GYN. And Fred says, well, great. Why don't you just follow me around for a couple days at the hospital? And then all the people who have followed Dr. Fred's footsteps for two days, there have been two that have actually continued on to be OB-GYN that he knows of, both female. It was too rigorous. It was too hard. The sacrifice wasn't worth it. Uh, I have a friend that I went to seminary with that mid-career was thinking about pursuing plumbing. And so he found a master plumber who was willing to take him on as a journeyman and maybe apprentice even though he was older in life. And one week of working in the trades was enough for this man to look for a desk again. Because that's hard work. And it was much more physically rigorous and demanding than he was expecting. But it was good that he exposed himself to the cost before he made the commitment. There is a cost to following after Jesus. And so Jesus says to the scribe, count the cross, because those who follow after me may take on a cross in reality someday, and tens of millions of people have. As the scribe departs, another disciple comes up to him in verse 21 and says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their dead. So this one is actually called a disciple, a follower, someone who early in Jesus' itinerant ministry was beginning to follow him from place to place. But now Jesus is about to get on a boat and to depart to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is Gentile territory. And so he balks. 
The scribe addressed Jesus as teacher, which is never used as a title. It's a respectful title, but it's never used in the Gospels as one who seems to have faith in Christ. But this disciple calls him Lord, of someone who actually does believe that he is the Messiah, that does believe in something more than a teacher. And he seems to have a reasonable request. Let me bury my father first. And Jesus says this unexpected, seemingly harsh phrase, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now commentators have different alternative explanations as to why Jesus would respond to what seems to be a very harsh manner. Some suspect, it's speculation, that maybe the father wasn't dead yet. So in other words, let me remain as long as my father is alive and then when he passes, I'll give him a proper burial, but it's open-ended. He's non-committal. Others say that what's going on is the man is wanting the extra year that when someone died in Israel at the time, they would place their body in a tomb, a family crypt, and after a year or so, the decay would leave just the bones. And the bones would be placed in what was called a bone box or an ossuary. So some think that this person's father has died, and now he wants the year to wait for the bones and inter the bones in the official bone box, the ossuary. Uh, others suggest that what Jesus is saying is that the spiritually dead should bury the physically dead. So he's really asking the disciple to say, are you spiritually alive? Are you truly a believer in me? Because if so, you should come and follow me. For myself, what I think is going on here is that Jesus knew that this particular disciple had such an attachment to his family, to his father, to his filial obligation, that he was prioritizing this over Jesus. And therefore Jesus, looking into his heart, knew this is the thing that you in particular need to let go of to follow me. Do you remember when a rich young ruler came to Christ and he said, Lord, how may I enter into heaven? And Jesus said, what does the law say? And he starts giving the litany of the Ten Commandments. And he says, all of these things I've done for my youth. And Jesus says what? One thing you lack. Go and sell all that you possess and come follow me. And the man left with much sadness because he possessed much wealth. There's two people in the Gospels that Jesus personally invites to come follow him that turn away and refuse the invitation. The rich young ruler and this disciple both of whom had something in their life that they valued more than Christ. And so Christ in his love said, if you're gonna follow me, you must make me your highest priority. You must make me the top value in your life. Jesus didn't tell every person to sell all that they possess. He didn't tell every rich person to sell all that they possess. He doesn't prohibit others from burying their family members. But this particular person had this particular attachment that was keeping him from following Christ, like many of us do as well. And for some, it may be their ambitions. It may be their career. For others, it may be their family. Uh, my wife growing up in a Buddhist family, for she and her sister, the thought of being disowned and disinherited by their parents was unthinkable because as Asians, they so valued that family relationship. Uh, for some, it's a lust or a sin or a greed but there's some attachment that we cling to that we need to let go of if we're going to follow after Christ. Because Christ says that we must prioritize Him above all else if we're going to follow after Him. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. And he imagines a scenario in which residents of hell, once a year, get to go on a bus ride to heaven 
and visit. And while they're there, these day trippers can actually choose to leave hell and get into heaven. But everyone that he shares their story has one thing in particular that they won't let go of. For one person, it's lust. For one person, it's his reputation. For one person, it's his academic work. For some people, it's just their attachment to other people. Heaven is open to them, and they're all beckoned to come in. They just have to put them in their proper place. They have to associate them in their proper priorities, and they won't. Uh, Y'all have heard the anecdote, again, I don't know if it's true, I hope it is, of the way you catch a monkey in Africa is you get a coconut, hollow it out, put in a hole, put some rice or a treat inside, the monkey reaches in to get the treat, makes a fist to grab it, won't pull out, and he will stay captive by the treat and the trap because he won't let go of something that's far less valuable than his life. And we're that way as well. We grab onto things, earthly attachments that we have to let go of if we're going to follow after Christ. Uh, the church father, Augustine, talked about the Christian life being a reorientation of our affections, a reprioritization of our loves. That when we come to Christ, there are certain things that we need to stop loving, namely sin. There are certain things that we need to start loving, like God. There are certain things that we need to start loving less, like ourselves. There are certain things that we need to start loving more, like other people. But we're reorienting our affections. There are good things in our life that could become bad things if they become idols. If we place them above God, if we place them before Christ. And so Jesus, through this lesson to the disciple, is telling us, if you're going to follow me, you must make me your first priority. Because Jesus is God and deserves that. Uh, I had a friend who was called to be a missionary in Russia. And his mother, who didn't want him to leave, he went to go visit his mom in Georgia. And they went to a conference with Elizabeth Elliot. And if you know her, Elizabeth Elliot was the husband of Jim Elliot, who after the tribesmen in Ecuador killed her husband, she and another lady moved into the village that had murdered her husband to lead them to Christ. Great woman of God. And this mother said, Ms. Elliot, would you please talk to my son and tell him that he needs to stay home because his first obligation is to me. And she asked the wrong person because Ms. Elliot looked at her and said, Ma'am, if God has called your son to Russia, he must obey God. If you enlist in the military, you can't protest when you're deployed. You go. And so God, when he tells us to do something, we do it. When he sends us somewhere, we go somewhere. But God has first place in our life. And that is the lesson of Jesus to the disciple. Jesus said in Matthew 10, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. God comes first, which means Jesus comes first because Jesus is God. Now look at verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. So they finally push off from Capernaum, which is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles north to south, about here to Sanger, and it's eight miles east to west across, which is about here to uh, Earl's 377 in Argyle. 
These fishermen in the boat were very familiar with the sea. But the thing about the Sea of Galilee is it lies 685 feet below sea level in a basin. And on the eastern shore are cliffs that rise up 2,000 feet above sea level. And what happens is, at times, cold, dry air comes from the higher elevation and drops down and it meets the warm, moist air from the lake and it forms an occluded front. Did I get that right, Kerry? He's, he didn't say yes. Thank you for not correcting publicly. But it forms a front that stirs up the sea that can make a storm hit all of a sudden that can create waves eight to nine feet high. So this is a phenomena. For us, we would call this a large lake. But because of its situation, low next to high, and the way that the cool and the warm air meet, storms can arise. And in fact, the word for storm here is seismos. Seismic, seismatology. This was a seismic event. In most other occurrences in the Bible, it's used of an earthquake. It literally means a shaking up, an agitation. So the relatively shallow Sea of Galilee meets this storm, the waters are churned up, and now eight to nine feet waves are hitting a boat that we know to be about 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and about four and a half feet tall. And we know this because a drought came in 1986 and exposed a boat on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We have the remains of it. So some of you have been to Capernaum and have seen the so-called Jesus boat. Now, we don't know if this was actually the boat. We didn't have Jesus initials carved into it or anything like that. There was no fish symbol to indicate it. You know, Jesus was here. But we know that it dates back to the first century, and so this would have been a typical fishing boat. And then we have a model of it. This was not a large vessel to have nine-foot waves battering against it. And this storm was significant enough to terrify four professional fishermen who had been plying these waters for their entire lives. It was severe enough that they would turn in desperation to a landlubber, a carpenter-turned-itinerant rabbi, to try to help them. And so they call out, Save us, Lord! We are perishing! And Jesus got up, rebuked the winds and the sea, and they became perfectly calm. Jesus was asleep. The prior day, he had preached the Sermon on the Mount. He had healed a leper, healed the centurion's servant, healed Peter's mother-in-law, healed the multitudes, cast out demons. It had been a long day. But he also knows that he's at no risk because God's purpose for him isn't completed. A great saint in Denton, Nan Anderson, who taught BSF for years and years, used to say, you are invulnerable until God's purposes for you are complete. You are indestructible until the days that God has allotted for you are completed. You can't die until God's time for you to die comes. And then you're embraced by Him. And so Jesus wakes up, He rebukes the storm, and instantly it becomes like a lake on a Texas morn that's just still as glass. Perfectly calm. Um, when I was a young boy, we lived in southern Louisiana. And one time, a severe hurricane came in, and we took shelter at the nearby high school. And so I remember hunkering down in these thick concrete walls of this high school while the hurricane beat against the school. And then they got quieter, and then it got still, and they allowed the people seeking shelter to leave the school and to walk out into the eye of the hurricane. 
and there was this eerie stillness and calm that was there. And then very quickly, the gust became gusty again and we were ushered back into the school because the other side of the hurricane was gonna pass over us. But this wasn't gradual and this wasn't temporary. This was immediate and this was sudden. Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves and they instantly become calm. And what they say to him is, who is this man that even the winds and the waves respond to him? Now this text has been taught different ways at different times. In the early church, this was seen as an allegory for the church. So the church was the boat with Jesus as the captain. And when the storms of sin and Satan begin to toss your, velo, your vessel about, remember that Jesus is in the boat and rouse him to save you and he will. That's how this was taught for a long time. In more modern times, preachers typically present this as a way that we handle tempestuous times in life. And so when you find yourself in storms of life, remember that Jesus is in the boat with you and call on him to save you because he is able to calm the waters and rebuke the winds. And this is likely what's going on in a famous painting by Rembrandt called Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. Unfortunately, you can't see this live anymore because it was stolen from a Boston museum in 1990. Two thieves came in dressed as policemen, told the security guard on duty that there had been an alarm bell. They would they gather all the security personnel they needed to ask questions. When they were all gathered, they pulled their guns, tied them up, stole 12 paintings worth $500 million, including Rembrandt's only seascape. But you can go online and you can look at it. And when you do and you count, there's one person too many. There's 12 apostles, there's Jesus, and then there's this fellow wearing a painter's cap, staring out of the canvas directly at you, the viewer, and that's Rembrandt. So we have several self-portraits of Rembrandt, and this is a miniaturized Rembrandt who has inserted himself into the storm as a way of evoking us to do the same. Imagine if you were there, because at one time or another, storms hit all of our vessels, and Christ is the one who was able to rebuke the winds and distill it. There are spiritual truths in both those messages, but that's not Matthew's primary point. Matthew's primary point in the passage are revealed through the two questions that are asked. The first is from Jesus. Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Remember last week when he met the centurion and he marveled, it's the only time we see Jesus marveling in the Gospel of Matthew, he marveled at the greatness of the faith of a Gentile. After the Sermon on the Mount when he rebuked the little faith of those who were anxious whether or not God's really going to feed them and clothe them. Five times he's going to talk about little faith, little faith, little faith, little faith, because what is the response that Christ is looking for? Faith, trust. Do you not know who I am, O you of little faith? faith. David said in Psalm 56, 3, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Isaiah said, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. So a lesson for us from Christ is when we are frightened is an indication that we lack faith and we need to be reminded of the truth that not only is Christ in the boat with us, but Christ is the maker of the winds and the waves because Christ is God. 
And that's the primary point of this passage. And it's revealed in the second question. The disciples were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And the answer is, there is no man that controls the wind and the seas. Only God does that. Now the disciples had seen Jesus heal the sick. They had seen him cure lepers. They had seen him cast out demons. But this is an entirely different category altogether. And in the Old Testament, with language that's going to be striking similar to this passage, only God controls the winds and the waves because God is the creator and the maker of all. At the flood, he caused the waters to rise and then to recede. When Jonah fled for Tarshish, God said, or the Bible says that God threw a storm at it. And then at the moment that the sailors threw Jonah overboard, what happened to the storm? Instantaneously, still as glass. Psalm 104 praises God the creator. And it says, you covered the earth with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. What did Jesus do to the waters? He rebuked them like God. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. In 2 Samuel twenty-two sixteen, it says about God delivering Isaiah through the parting of the Red Sea. The channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were laid bare by the rebuke of the Lord. In the Old Testament, God is the one who rebukes the stormy waves and they become calm. And Matthew says Jesus rebuked the waves and it became calm. Psalm 65, 5 says, By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth, who still the roaring of the seas and the roaring of their waves. Why should the ends of the earth trust in God? Because he is the creator of all who is even able to still the chaotic winds and waves of the seas. Psalm 89, 8 says, O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, Almighty God? Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the seas, and when its waves rise, you still them. This isn't just a divine miracle. This is evoking all these passages that indicated the only true God, the living God, Yahweh, maker of heaven and earth, reveals his unique divine majesty by controlling the winds and the waves, and so does Jesus, because Jesus is God. That's the primary point of the passage. That's why Jesus has the authority to direct his disciples. That's why Jesus has the authority to preserve his disciples, because Jesus is God. And that's why Jesus can tell us, if you would follow after me, then you must be willing to sacrifice everything if asked, because Jesus is worth it, because Jesus is God. This is why Jesus was able to say to the disciple, you should prioritize me even above your father. Because we should prioritize Jesus above everything. Because Jesus is God. And we should be willing to face whatever storms, whatever mobs, whatever situations that Jesus leads us into. Because Jesus has led us there and Jesus is sovereignly in control over them. And we should put our trust in him and to grow in faith, not in fear. Because Jesus is God. And so he has the authority to say, follow me no matter the cost. Make me the ultimate priority in your life and have faith in me no matter what, because Jesus is God. But consider for a moment those who didn't do this. There is a cost of discipleship. 
the cost of non-discipleship is higher. I saw a bumper sticker once that said, if you think the cost of education is high, try the, uh, try the cost of ignorance. So it costs a lot to get an education, but ignorance is worse. What about the scribe who turned away? Presumably, he had a secure, safe place to lay his bed at night. All it cost him was the opportunity to walk with God in the flesh and learn from Him and receive the gospel and live in heaven forever and ever. That was a costly lodging. <laughs> that was a bad deal. What did it cost the disciple to not get in the boat? Presumably, he pleased his father and his family. Presumably, he was esteemed by his peers. All it cost him was the opportunity to follow after Christ and to see Him still the storm and to watch him later walk on water and to be a part of the ministry of saving souls for all eternity. That was an expensive funeral. And what about the people at Capernaum? They saw the mighty storm and they were safe on shore. They may have just battened down a window or two, carried in the lawn furniture, but they could safely watch the storm at sea and not feel a moment's fright. But they didn't see Jesus calm the storm. They didn't realize that God in the flesh was in the boat with them. The cost of discipleship, of following after Jesus, is high. The cost of rejecting Christ, of refusing to follow after Him, is higher. Follow after Jesus, no matter the cost, for He is God. Make Jesus the top priority of your life, for He's worth it. He's God. And in the midst of the storms of life, whatever situations we find ourselves in, trust Jesus, because He's God. Follow Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this passage that reveals your son in ways that we've not fully understood to now. Uh, when he was named Emmanuel, God with us, that was literal. That was God literally becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your love that from heaven your son came because you sent him. And he took on flesh so that as our representative, he could live a perfect life for us that as our substitute, He could die on the cross for our sins, that as the Son of Man, He could minister among not just the elites, but among the needy, like us, and that as the God-man, the Son of Man, He died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and three days later rose from the grave, ascended from heaven, and now we await His return so that all who confess their sins and entrust their salvation to Him, will reign with Him on a new earth forever and forever and forever. Thank you for Christ. Give us the courage to follow Him no matter the cost. Help us to see the truth so that we don't misplace our priorities. And when you sovereignly allow us to experience terrifying events in our life, let us not be of little faith and fear, but let us be great in faith that cast out fear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.